Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's An Angel in the Forest. We are on page 226, and the chapter heading is An Adult View. Uh, so I think this is... One, two, three, four, five. Alright, so about my average. So I'll go ahead and read this chapter. The following poem in opposition to the Owen community, first published in Philadelphia, was widely circulated and of that order which despised a real millennium. The devil at length scrambled out of the hole discovered by Simis at the freezing North Pole. He mounted an iceberg, spread wings for a sail, and started for Earth with his long barbed tail. He heard that a number of people were going to live on the Wabash with great Mr. Owen. He said to himself, I must now have a care, circumstances require that myself should be there. I know that these persons think they are impelled, and by power of circumstance all men are held. I know no allegiance to heaven or me, what a place for this work, for the devil will be. Since Adam first fell by my power powerful hand, I have wandered for victims through every known land. But in all my migrations ne'er hit on a plan that would give me the rule so completely over man. I have set sex to fighting and shedding of blood, and have whispered to bigots they're all doing good. Inquisitions I've founded made kings my lies swallow, but this plan of free living beats all my schemes hollow. I have tempted poor Job and have smote him with sores. I have tried all good men and caught preachers by scores, but never on earth through my whole course of evil. Until now, until now could I say, Here's a plan beats the devil. I am satisfied now this will make the coast clear, for men to all preaching will turn a deaf ear, since it's plain that religion is changed to opinions. I must hasten back home and enlarge my dominions. The devil then mounted again on the ice and dashed through the waves and got home in a trice, and told his, few fellow, and told his fell imps whom he kept at the pole, circumstances required, they should widen the hole. The book of nature was written on leaves of sandstone and limestone, no everlasting material. For thousands of years, what is now the state of Indiana was a vast plain of granite rock covered by a deep, salt, tideless sea. Not only was there no human landscape, there was neither bird nor angel, which is a latter development than bird or man, a combination of both. Gradually, transparent fishes began to appear in the Indiana Sea, and their fins are marked upon the sultry prairie rock. Without benefit of Noah, through endless ages the waters withdrew then out of the mists of time rose pterodactyls birds with human hands but without dresden lavaliers around their necks as they were free from all ornamentation even the pale flowers of rhetoric in the later formations of rock in the later formations of rock appear impressions of leaves lizards bird tracks convolvulus but not one human footprint for man was the inconceivable possibility something which apparently no direction pointed to and had he continued missing, the earth would still have seemed complete. Came the sea again, glassy as death, and an age of sea burial, but time after time, that Lazarus of birds and flowers has risen to new, incorruptible life. Then vast glaciers like crystal rivers inched down from the Arctic north. What could not move was destroyed. When the cape of the glacier was withdrawn, low appeared a rich soil with many rivers, many streams. Soon this green area was populated by swans, cranes, geese, white heron, wild duck, the kingfisher, swallows, horny-tongued woodpeckers, a variety of birds, but no religious experiences. There were communities of lion-headed hornets, most cooperative, enemies to all creatures but themselves. It was an atomless Eden, where ants performed their marriage flight and lost their wings. 
Immense elephants browsed on the Wabash Hills, lifting their trumpet trunks among the topmost branches of the maple and oak trees. As yet, their ivory was intended not for the keys of the harpsichord. The puma devoured the deer. Parrots mingled their cries with the cries of monkeys in Posey County. Where new harmony is, there was a crocodile, whose mouth served as a dormitory for plover. But that was not paradise. Or was it? When man arose, he was already old and corrupt, like the earth before him, a creature with a history. There was never a first dawn. There was never a pale geometer, impelled to create in the abstract with golden compass a harmonious likeness of himself. As Descartes said, years later, I may have invented the rational animal, which passes in Aristotelian circles as man, and having ideas of myself and God I may, by way of imaginative patchwork or compromise, have pieced together the idea of an angel. As Thomas Paine said, surrounded by voluptuous sectarians, Oh, vulturous, <laughs> vulturous sectarians, when he lay dying on Grove Street in Manhattan. Why does it say Manhattan? Nor is it possible to, oppose, to suppose that every world in the boundless creation had an Eve, an apple, a serpent, and a redeemer. Man was his own shadow play, whether his soul existed with or without his body, being a problem which he alone must solve, even as he converged onto non-existence and the dismemberment of creation. For his supremacy to the brute facts could be established only in the interval between his life and his death. Time passed as time passes. In the early 18th century, when M. Voltaire was writing Candide, to refute Leibniz's thesis that this is the best of all possible worlds, and Dr. Johnson was writing Rasselas with two allied purposes in mind, to discredit the possibility of the attainment of happiness in this world, and to pay for the burial of his mother's corpse laid out in a stuffy living room. The Wabash was still a stream described by inarticulate Indians. Soon the river was ascertained to be the river, while Jonathan Swift complained wryly that, like the tree which withers from the top, he should die from his head downward. Jesuit missionaries pushed through dense foliage, conveying the glad tidings of immortality to the Indians of Indiana. Traitors followed. There were both masses and massacres, innumerable wildest orgies carried on under the shadow of the cross at Fort Wayne, the cross at Terre Haute. The more Indians slaughtered, the greater the business. As is often true when a superior race goes out to conquer an inferior, the supposed inferior conquered, though subtly. White men wore the scalps of red men around their waists, though never forgetting at the same time to acquire furniture, livestock, and poultry. Indian progress to civilization was rare, though there were a few glorious chieftains who employed their spare moments to learn of human nature from the blue-stocking comedies of Moliere, to learn of themselves from the works of Puny Rousseau. One or two of these children of nature appeared disdainfully in London drawing-rooms, and were the sensations of the social season, as ladies fluttered and bows grew dumb in admiration. Everywhere there was the cult of nature, everywhere the Indian was idealized, at the same time that he was being destroyed. In an impolite world of things as they are in the early 19th century, an Indian prophet arose, even on the banks of the Wabash. Lolawachika, the Indian Patrick Henry. If they did not hang together, they would all hang separately. Lolawachika said a little belatedly, he proposed to establish a community of Indians in the Wabash Valley, where the problem should be the Indian as an end in himself, rationally considered. Alas, but to achieve this plan, he must employ the most irrational means, the most forceful, must destroy the invading white race by the use of painted arrows and propaganda. 
Lola Wachika, or Loud Voice, was a most convincing orator and capable, by much beating of his breast and much dancing, of arousing his audience to frenzied rage. He was, he said, spokesman of the great spirit, the Indian of Indians, who flies higher than an eagle to his dwelling places in the sun. And Lola Wachika's uh, father's house were many mansions, to include themselves and little foxes themselves and green corn. Neither arrow nor bullet could destroy Lola Wachika until he achieved his mission, which was to save his people from their white saviors. They should be established in a happy hunting ground where there would be no Christian traders, but many papooses, much feeding, much feeling, no thinking, he promised. Lola Wachika, a loud voice, was, as he said, the spokesman of a greater spirit, his brother Tecumseh, a subtle philosopher who lacked nothing but the gift of speech. Yeah, Tecumseh, Tecumseh or Tecumseh would have been at home, however, with the best thinkers of his day. With the great empiricists, he would have held to the idea of Occam's razor, with all the false ideas should be scalped, that all the false ideas should be scalped away. With the followers of Locke, that the mind is born a blank page. With the followers of Rousseau, that no writing should be placed on it. With the followers of whom, that there is no rosary of thought, but only so many detached beads without a string. With all those who saw the absolute dissolving, Tecumseh was very far from being, however, the romantic ending as described by Pope. Though proud science had never taught him to stroll through the solar walk, it might be disappointment to the idealist who dreamed of the green forest, but once he had rid the wilderness of white invaders, he intended to adopt their ways, insofar as rational, their methods of house-building, crop-rotation, wool-spinning, all Indians in his utopia to be dressed in linsey woolsey pantaloons and cocked hats. Thus would all Indians become the thing they fought against. Fortunately, Tecumseh was a man bound by mortal circumstance, Unfortunately, Lola Wachika, or Loud Voice, was Tecumseh's trumpet. Daily newspaper, flaming sword of justice, popular opinion. Thousands of white settlers, always the innocent, were slain. Any night might be the night of great maraudings, immense conflagrations, lighting skies, shrieking, scalpings, riderless horses. Tecumseh seemed invulnerable. Tecumseh, the Napoleon, had at, la had at last his Waterloo, however, his just retribution. Not only he perished, but many of his people. Indian women and children were cut to pieces. Blackbirds feasted. On such an occasion, Andrew Jackson rescued an Indian baby from the arms of a dead woman in the field and raised it as his own. The remnant Indian people, disorganized and beaten down, scattered to the four winds. They insisted that Tecumseh's spirit rode on wind, perhaps so far as to the Milky Way, the solar walk. There would be, they said, a second coming of one among them, Tecumseh, riding a white horse, reaped the white men's scalps, and his realm would last forever. Meanwhile, by various means, the Indians faded, like the dews from Jehovah, like the hoarfrost on summer grass. After the Jesuit and the whiskey merchants had come, the Protestant preacher, the Baptist, conspiring with Daniel Boone in the struggle to possess the dark and bloody ground, inferno of the Wabash Valley. The preacher, equipped with both Bible and bullets, rode on his lean nag through the Indiana wilderness, singing a loud, loud hallelujah, and his song drove the last Indian away. When the wolves howled down on his knees, when the wolves howled, down on his knees fell that astute preacher with his gun cocked in his hand, reciting the Lord's Prayer. When the Lord was a shepherd, yea, and had led him beside the still waters, yea, and through the valley which is the shadow of death, even the wolves got religion then. Not infrequently, that preacher was a married man and bedded down each night with his wife and children in the sour, mosquito-ridden grass. Bullfrogs and Baptists flourished, we are told, in buttonwood swamps, until along came the Methodists, bringing ills of every sort, for Methodists in milkweed sickness always entered a neighborhood together. There were many villains in those days. The Hoosier, before he answered a knock at his cabin door, cocked his rifle, yelling, Who's your? 
From whence comes this illuminating name, the Hoosier being the world over a suspicious fellow. There were many unconscious heroes in those days, many Jodes. Merely by the act of walking back and forth, there were many who made wonderful contributions to the idea of human progress. Their feet did the work while their heads rested. There was, for example, the lice-ridden family, which crossed by foot from Indiana to Tennessee 25 times in the space of a few years. So many times, in fact, that they lost all track of themselves and hardly knew whether they were coming or go they were going or coming. One thing sure, they were always on their way. As soon as they got to Ingeni, they yearned for Tennessee. As soon as they got to Tennessee, they yearned for Ingeni. The place where they were not was always the better place, the greener pasture. Their feet traced a road through the wilderness, Pappy and Mam and Mule. They all died on the road, and Mammy lived to talk about it. And the cloudy number of times she had squatted and picked up her new baby in her arms, the little bro no bigger than her hand, she buried in a holler stump filled with gold cocoons and autumn leaves. And how when she came back that spring, little bro, the old cocoons, the autumn leaves, they were all, they was all, they all was gone. There was also the devious history of Francis Slocum, with like a green writing on a green page in the books of nature. Its beginning was elsewhere, but its end was Indiana. During an Indian raid, when war whoops sounded around her father's cabin, Francis, aged three, was fast asleep under her bed when she had crawled where she had crawled to retrieve a corncob doll. In the great excitement of the moment for getting Francis, her family fled. The Indian chieftain, seeing a pair of little feet which stuck out from under her bed, deduced a little body. With hardly the rustle of an ash leaf in the wind, he gathered Francis up into his arms. War was his business and perhaps his pleasure, but his heart fluttered when he put his cheek to hers. In the great evil of the white man's world, he had found his papoose, this bag of wild bees' honey, this sweetness and light. Father then to the stellar walkier and infinities farther, he carried sleeping Francis. Her anguished parents searched for her. When her parents died, her brothers continued to advertise, begging for that anyone who had heard to tell of a white woman among the Indians, or any Indian woman who suspected that she was white-skinned, should come direct to them. Theirs is a great compassion, there is a biblical lament. The, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Sixty years in the wilderness, Francis lived unknown. Sixty years, the summer turned toward autumn. When all hope seemed gone, for many winds had blown, and many rains had fallen, and the brothers had moved to another town, there came to that town one day, upright, a frisking, a frisking pony, an ancient Indian woman, tobacco-colored, with long braided hair and a crown of wild goose feathers, and nothing in her look or manner to suggest that she was the lost child, Francis Locum. My name is Francis Locum, she said. Yes, she had remembered, like a faint glimmering star beyond the clouds, her name, and a corncob doll, and had been aware all her life of a mistake which had been made by destiny, and happier they whom stars unite in one dream. The Indian chieftain had been kind to her, and she enjoyed much happiness, much nature. Being an Indian princess, who might have been a sun-bonneted singer in a church choir, she said, I am the old tree which cannot be planted again. It was an announcement communicating her pride and her felicity. Not far from the old Wabash there was, in the early years of the 19th century, a family of squatters who crossed over from Kentucky, shiftless, down at the heel, daydreaming, ragged, honey-tongued. Among these a boy, prematurely old, Abe Lincoln, the expression of all that was good in the weak and lonely. The wilderness was doomed, though few could have guessed it, to become a network of roads in the future, a loud honking, not of wild geese, but of automobiles. An observer wrote in 1824 of the already congested traffic, hundreds of families migrating to the west with ease and comfort, 
drovers from the west with their cattle of almost every description turning eastward toward a market. Indeed, this great thoroughfare may be compared to a street through some populous city, travelers on foot, on horseback, and in carriages are seen mingling on its paved surface. Almost alone among the many migrants to and fro, the Owenites had dedicated themselves to the mental conquest and to many liberalizing theses, theses, proponents, oh no, propositions, preambles, paragraphs, a universal suffrage. The irony is the contrast between all their pretentious articles, sections, and items, and the bleak reality these hid. They were dedicated, for example, to the love of nature, when fewer and fewer would find tongues on the trees. Books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. On the other hand, they seem to have altogether the mentality and psychology of the old aesthetic, for whom nature is always a defective material. The mass could not resist that mental contagion, that great dream of non-entity. Thus will be seen that while Robert Owen preached one sermon, his people heard another. Shortly after Noah's Ark dry-docked, the preliminary committee assumed the status of a permanent committee, as had been promised. This was a sudden revolution. Its political doctrine was based on an appeal to man's inherent goodness and magnanimity, ignoring the fact of a hum- humanity guided by atavistic instincts and ways of unreasoning emotion, ignored the fact of a great inertia. It placed great faith in the portents, potents of theories and ideas. Nothing evidently was to be as it had been. Thomas Piers, former bookkeeper and great lover of transients, was thus appointed to act as secretary to a committee for the drawing up of the permanent constitution of the permanent committee. There followed two weeks of heated debates and headaches, though there was some agreement that the killers of men should not be called the real, the strong, the masters of men. The document shows the luxurious blossoming of liberal ideas like weeds in a corn patch. All the evils, however, seemed removed. It bore the interesting preface. When a number of the human family associate in principles which do not yet influence the rest of the world, a due regard to the opinions of others requires a public declaration of the object of their association of their principles and their intentions. There could be no mystery, no angel, no weeds. The permanent constitution reiterated like a trumpet cry the earlier promise of happiness to all sentient beings. The permanent constitution provided by clause and subclause were the following, uninfluenced by sex or condition in all adults, equality of duties, modified by physical and mental confirmation, cooperative union, and all the business and amusements of life, community of property, freedom of speech and action, sincerity, kindness, courtesy, order, health, knowledge. The Owenites held the following to be self-evident, that all men are uniformly actuated by a desire for happiness, that no member of the human family is born with rights, either of possession or exemption, superior to those of his fellows, that freedom cannot justly be limited except by a man's own consent, that the preservation of life in its most perfect state is the first of all practical considerations. Experience had taught to the Owenites the great lesson that man's character is a result of his formation, his location, and the circumstances within which he exists, that man at birth, formed unconsciously to himself, is located without his consent, and circumstanced without his control. Simple reasons showed that to a being of such a nature, artificial rewards and punishments were equally inapplicable. Kindness must be the one consistent mode of treatment and courtesy, the only irrational species of deportment. The Owenites had found in practice that an increase of intelligence is equally an increase in happiness. They sought intelligence, therefore, as they sought happiness. Their first and most important knowledge would be the knowledge of themselves, as beings to whom a complete good is always accessible. They had seen misery produced by the great leading principles which prevailed throughout the world, therefore they had not adopted them. They believed that man had a capacity for social sympathy, that the strings of each human instrument were, are similarly attuned, that the vibration of one harp can easily transmit itself to another without supernatural means or endowment. The gospel 
of an unmysterious truth must now be spread abroad freely. Resolved that science is creating with golden compass and pencil a new world amongst the Wabash, where, ed- where education, like real estate, shall be a public property. Resolved that the only mystery within these gates is the order of Freemasons, they who wore skirts. Resolved that man is an intricate machine. Resolved that the exaltation of one power over another promotes the downfall of the human race. Resolved that man is man, a creation of circumstance. Resolved that violence has disappeared. Resolved that there is no principle of right conduct applying out of relationship with human life and experience. Resolved that the unused faculties have hindered survival in posterity. Resolved that woman is man's equal and may wear trousers. Resolved that there is not only a astronomical, there is also biological uniformitarianism. Resolved that as an arm implies a body and the moon's movements take into consideration the entire solar system, so also must society be considered as a whole to which all parts are related. Resolved that there is in such a system no place for a swan-necked deity reflecting himself in the glassy mirror of an unreal, purely fugitive universe. Resolved that the negative aspects of life must be dispensed with. The mistaken writings of the past are herewith blotted out on the recommendation of Thomas Pierce and others, suffering to have no more its perennial source in man's own heart. Phew! I'm uh, still working on the biography of Josephine B., but also added three-body problem, which is a really great science fiction novel. If you haven't read it, I highly... I don't read much science fiction but this is really good. Um, it's easily uh, my favorite um, that I've read. And um, the three-body problem is like a thing. There's a lot of like real science in the book. And I know, I don't know exactly where I will when I reread Miss Macintosh, My Darling, uh, come up, stumble upon it again, is that Miss Macintosh was doing that as well. She had references to the three-body problem in her work. And that just goes to show she, she, she was, she thought very highly of herself and she had every reason to. Like, she was a little bit of a genius in there. Um, uh, she really had all kinds of stuff. That's why I don't mind rereading her book because there's tons of stuff in it. And also, it really feels like I've read other big books and it really feels like all of those other big, big books about big ideas from big authors, whether it's Pinchon or Wallace or Nabokov or whoever it is, they're all saying the same thing. They're all hashing over the same stuff. So, yeah, pick one and stick with it. (laughs) <laughs> there's no sense in trying to read all of them because um, I don't think there's really any difference I really don't I mean, they're minute but anyways yep uh, thank you for listening and have a great day or evening wherever you are bye <laughs>